you had first world problems. That is a dated video from actually four years ago, and yet, and yet, it still speaks of truth that I think many of us can relate to, which is we tend, many of us, especially in an area like this, have first world problems. My pillow isn't cold enough on the other side. I can't reach the remote, it's way over there, and my kids aren't nearby to go get it. I mean, you know, like these are first world problems, but I, I find that in our culture, which is a very developed culture, it creates a sense of discontent. We're constantly discontent and we're constantly comparing. And the challenge is living in this culture that we live in and where we are in our sermon series today, which is the 10th commandment, do not covet. We live in a culture that causes us to be discontent and anxious about our place and what we have or don't have But hear what the 10th commandment says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. We'll read it in the ESV because the King James gets a little racy. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So we come to the end of a series on the Ten Commandments, and what's interesting about this commandment is it is the one that starts off internally. And as many commentators also point out, it is one of the commandments, or the commandment, that is one of the controlling commandments. What do I mean by that? Coveting is internal. You don't actually see. You guys could be coveting right now my fantastic shoes, my beautiful coiffed hair, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know until you tried to steal them or murder me. But what ends up happening is coveting plays itself out in the breaking of the other commandments, more obviously. So it is a controlling and driving command. And it's why, actually, you could use the first and the tenth commandment and really get rid of all the others. Jesus, in a sense, does this, right? What is the main commandment? Jesus says, you know the the main commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you just take it from the commandments, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods, do not covet. Everything in between is commentary. If you can just worship God alone and not covet, you're good. At the root of both, one God and do not covet is worship. What we desire. What we desire most and who or what is actually our God. So the word covet um, is is a word that in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is this word epithumia. There's a verb tied to it as well. Epi means over, on, above, super, or controlling. And thumia is desire or longing, misspelled by me. So coveting is a controlling desire, an over-desire, a main desire. In other words, if you want to know if you covet something, or to put it the other way around, to find out what you're coveting, it's what you actually worship. What is truly your God? 
you only will covet what you desire most. You're not going to covet things you don't desire. I mean, if we read the original, the Exodus 20, you might say, look, I don't covet my neighbor's ox or donkey. I mean, who cares about donkeys? But if we ask the question, why might I covet anything, you can break it down and see underneath of it root and controlling desires, things that we are worshiping besides God. So why might I covet my neighbor's wife? Because something besides God is my main desire, sex and pleasure. My wants are my main desire. Why might I covet a friend's looks? Because beauty or body is my source of identity. Why would I covet another person's career? Because success or wealth or influence is most important to me, more important than anything else. Why might any of us be anxious about our place in a circle of friends, being worried about whether we're going to be forgotten or left out of something? Because something besides God is at the root of my heart. Something has captured my desires, popularity, approval. So I have to know where I fit in. You only covet what has your heart. You only covet what you worship. You will only covet what is your true God. And the good news is we all do it. We all fall short in this. And as our first world problem rapper pointed out, I think we're all affected, more affected by our circumstances than we're even willing to admit. We're constantly comparing with others in whatever area is most important to us. If our kids are most important, then we're going to be comparing how our kids behave with others, how they're doing in school versus others, how they're performing on the sports field versus others. And you can play it out in any area that is most important to you. We're constantly comparing. And as a result, we allow circumstances to control and form and shape our wants and our desires. Philip Reichen, a pastor, said this about the Tenth Commandment. As long as we base our contentment on anything in this world, we will always find some excuse to be miserable. We concentrate on what we don't have rather than on what we do. Coveting is the over-desiring of the wrong things, and it results in being discontent and anxious. So what do we do? How do we reform our desires in a different way? And what's the secret to being content? Well, Paul gives us some answers. So we look at Philippians 4, the end of our reading today. Paul writes, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
So what situation is Paul in? Well, actually, if you read all of Philippians, which you could go home and do, it'll take you 15 minutes to read the entire letter to the Philippian church. Paul's situation is that he is dealing with enemies that are actually fellow Christians who don't want him to succeed. They want him to fail. So it's betrayal and it's persecution for no reason. And on top of that, he's now in prison. And while none of us want to be in prison, a prison in the ancient world was something far more horrific. You were most likely in solitary confinement always. There was no light if you were in one of the dungeon prisons. And the only way you got fed was if somebody brought you food from the outside. There was no requirement that they would feed you. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. We know that Paul had a rough life. In 2 Corinthians 11, he describes some of the things that happened to him. Just look at some of these things that happened in his life and compare them to your own struggles in life. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lash less one. This is the same beating that Jesus received before being crucified. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. I was executed. Once he was executed, once he was in the electric chair, Three times beaten with rods, five times whipped, most likely unconscious. Three times I was shipwrecked, and shipwreck would be the equivalent of a plane crash. Three times I was in a plane crash. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, jumping down to verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Beaten, imprisoned, executed and left for dead, hungry, thirsty, sleepless. Content. Not coveting. Not wanting somebody else's situation. And this isn't just coveting somebody else's success, right? This isn't just extraneous contentment. He is dealing with the necessities of life. The most hard life you can experience, the worst things that can happen to you, he says, and I am content. It's not clear that he's going to survive. It's not just that he's lonely and needs a friend. He may not make it through the night. And I've learned the secret of being content. And we actually get the secret in the verses before this, but also in the very last verse in this little section of uh, verse 11 through 13. The very last section has this phrase, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I don't mean to put a little damper in you if this is your life verse and you've applied it in a way that has to do with winning games or making the team or getting straight A's. But according to this section of Scripture, and you're supposed to interpret Scripture in context, according to this, it's not I can win the game through Christ who strengthens me, but rather I can lose the game with grace. Why? Because of Christ who strengthens me. Not I can get the girl through Christ who strengthens me, but even when I am rejected by everyone else, I can experience the joy of life through Christ who strengthens me. When I am beaten and shipwrecked and my life is falling apart, I can endure through Christ who strengthens me. So whether I win or whether I lose, I'm content. 
What's the secret to being content in all circumstances? It is over-desiring what truly satisfies. Or to put it another way, the secret to being content is coveting. But coveting God and God's kingdom and not false gods in your own kingdom. And it diminishes all other false desires. Think about it this way. Let's put it on a level that's a little simpler. You're in high school, and there's a girl you've liked for a long time, and you finally find out she likes you. You know what happens then? During those moments of excitement, when you find out she likes you, all other things become diminished. The good and the bad become diminished. You could be driving to school and get a flat tire, and you're late, but she likes you. You could get an A-plus on that exam you studied for really hard, and, well, that's good and all, but even better, she likes me, right? It diminishes the highs and the lows when something greater has your heart. If your over-desire is for God and his kingdom, then the other kingdoms and other gods will not compete, which means the worst things that can happen to you will not destroy you. And the best things that can happen to you are not your heaven. It puts everything else in its rightful place. The way to overcome coveting, to be content, is to covet the right sort of thing. Our psalmist talked about this in Psalm 63, verse 1. He said, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I desire God, the psalmist says, more than water in the desert. His over-desire is for the Lord. And in a passage that we didn't read, but earlier in Philippians, Paul gives us the exact same idea. When he reveals his main desires... He says, it is my eager expectation and hope. It's my over-desire. Here's what I covet. That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. My eager expectation and hope is that I will be the most popular kid. My eager expectation and hope is that I will get a raise. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. And he really could be facing death. Indeed, I count everything as a loss. All, all the other great things that have happened to me, all the other titles and things I've accomplished, I count them all lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What does Paul covet? That Christ would be honored in his life or his death, that he would gain Christ, that he would know Christ, that he would become like Christ. These are his controlling desires. Are they yours? Philip Ryken once more said this, 
The secret to enjoying this kind of contentment is to be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever he has or has not provided. To be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever he has or has not provided. Okay, so how do we do this? Well, to borrow from Craig Taylor, I'm glad you asked. Practice, think, pray. Practice, think, and pray. I'm not just pulling this out of anywhere. It's earlier in our passage. We're going to go backwards. In verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul gives us some of the things that build into that life that is coveting God more than other things. So it can be content and not anxious, peaceful and not desiring other things. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Coming to faith in Christ is a gift that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit entering us and we fall upon the mercies of God. You do nothing. And yet you grow in your understanding of that through practice. Our desires, the desires of our heart, are cultivated. We actually learn our heart's loves through habits. James K.A. Smith wrote this. He said, love is a habit. Our most fundamental orientation to the world, the longings and desires that orient us towards some version of the good life, is shaped and configured by figured by imitated by imitate, imitation discipleship. It's a matter of reformation, reforming of our or of orienting our desires to God and what God desires for His creation. The things we do and do habitually. Our rituals, or to use a churchy term, our liturgies, do something to us. The things we do habitually do something to us, Smith says. They form our desires and our loves. They shape and increase what we truly love. If you covet something other than God, you can most likely trace it to a habit and rituals and liturgies in your life that are feeding that heart's love. And that's the need of doing something else that Smith talks about in his book, if you end up reading it. It's to take an inventory of your daily and weekly liturgies, the habits that are forming your heart, and figure out how can I reorient one or two of them towards God. Put these things into practice, Paul says. You know, that's one of the reasons why we gather together on a weekly basis. For this thing we call Sunday worship, it's not just a throwaway hour and a half. And it's not just for the sermon or just for the communion, depending on your tradition that you come from. It's actually for all of it. In the prayers, in the scripture, and the sermon, and the hymns sung, and the liturgy of words repeated, and coming forward for the sacrament, We are repeating rituals that are shaping our heart's loves Godward. We're learning things, but we're also practicing them and doing them week in and week out in a way that reorients us and reorients our heart towards the one who made us. 
And it's also one of the reasons why we do this whole thing collectively. You know, one of the things that Paul says is practice these things. And he, need, he says, imitate me. We actually need one another for this Christian life thing. We're called into community with conversations with friends to understand who God is and what he's done for us so that those things begin to shape our heart. In community, in worship, in the liturgies of our weekly life, we practice this thing that God has laid out for us. First, we practice. Second thing we do, a verse before that, is we think. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if anything is excellent, if there's anything excellent, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So what are these things? The things that are pure and lovely and just and true? What's the things of God? Again, this is very simple stuff. There's nothing mind-blowing here. It's nothing that we haven't talked about. But we put into practice the things we think about. And the thing that we're meant to fix our mind on is on God and his nature and his character. Paul talks about it in Colossians 3, 2, when he says, set your mind, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And by that, he doesn't mean you should always be escaping to the heavens. He means your mind should be so fixed on Christ and what he has done for you, the eternity that is promised for you, that the worries and concerns of this life do not primarily drive you. Rather, serving God and his purposes in your life, those are what drive you. We all need to know what we have in Christ through his death and resurrection and who we are now in Christ. The gospel should be shaping our thinking so that we become Gospel thinkers, people who live out of an understanding of who God is and what he has done for me. Look, our minds, your actual thoughts, okay? You're having them right now. Because even as you're listening to me, you also have 10 other things rolling through your brains. Your brains are very capable. Mine is. We, we all think a million miles per hour. Our thoughts also shape our heart's desires. It's why when you're asking, do I have any false gods in my life? You ask, what do you daydream about? When your mind is free to wander, where does it go? What do you have nightmares and fears about? What are you always anxious about? Where your mind goes, you can begin to see the idols of your heart. And what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4.8 and in Colossians 3.2 is, what if an awareness of God entered all my thoughts. You know, another place he says, pray continuously. Well, that's essentially what pray continuously is. It's your thoughts constantly aware of God. Think about these things. Is God in and affecting every thought, every decision, every word, every action? There's not a part of my mind it is not interacting with God, whether it's at work or at home or watching TV or here. Think. Practice, think. And thirdly, pray. This seems like the key key, 
but I'm going to say they're all keys here, but do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says that prayer brings peace, which is the ability to be content even when you don't have what you want. And he argues from this that reason and technique, like therapy and exercise, they can be good things, but they can't get you to the peace that is able to overcome betrayal of a spouse, childlessness when you want to have kids, cancer and facing death. Reason and technique are good, but the true peace that can endure and face all manner of hardship and loss and lack comes through prayer. How does this work? One commentator, Walter Hansen, said prayer is not a form of self-hypnosis that produces peace. Prayer is our openness about our needs before God, our emptiness in his presence, our absolute dependence on him with an attitude of constant thanksgiving and complete trust. You see, when we pray, what are we doing? We're entrusting our cares to God. We're handing them over, almost like physically saying, here, God, my kids, my career, my looks, the things I want, I give them to you. It's recognizing God alone is sovereign. We can't control things. And that God is good. He actually has our best in mind, even if we don't have what we want. That whatever he gives us is okay. And prayer is also a process of learning to trust God, where intimacy is developed because we are being close with God in our words and in our thoughts. I mean, think about how do you connect with anyone? How do you become close to anyone? It's actually time, proximity, and sharing stuff with them. A best friend, a spouse, a brother or sister, time with them, proximity, being near them, and talking or sharing an experience together. That's what prayer is with God. It is setting aside time to deliberately share and be with and near God. And that's the process of letting our hearts be transformed and handing things over to God. And what happens in the midst of prayer is that we end up getting changed. You're discontent, envious, jealous, anxious. What do you do? One friend said, I vent to God. I use my prayer journal and vent my anxieties. And this friend said, when I pray, it changes my perspective. It reminds me, these things I'm worried about, they're not what I'm supposed to be about. That's not who I am. And that this place and the things that I put so much time and effort in is not my ultimate home. I've found that when I pray, my desires do change. When I'm in the midst of prayer, you know what happens? I actually think less about myself and start to think more about others. And ultimately, I want God's purposes in my life, even if that means external failure. Well, I don't get what I want. 
Pray, think, practice, and do not covet. Easy. So here's the real challenge to sum us up here. You actually have to keep the Ten Commandments. The Bible says if you do not obey, you will surely die. You will perish. God's judgment and wrath will fall on you. And if you're visiting with us, or if you're not quite sure you buy into this Christian thing, you hear a message on the Ten Commandments, and that's what you're going to hear. And in a sense, you should. All of us should. Obey, or you will perish. But the fact is, you can't obey. None of us can. We cannot love God with our whole heart. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we've seen over the past 10 weeks, we will break every one of the commandments, if not externally, internally. Not negatively, by failing to do the positive. We will fall short. We cannot obey. But you also know that the gospel tells us that Christ did obey. Christ obeyed perfectly. And he died, experiencing our judgment and wrath on the cross for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die so that we can live the life that only he deserves by grace, through faith in him. The purpose of the commands on one level is to drive you to your knees in repentance so that you will see that you cannot live up and you need the grace and mercy of Christ. But there is a second. Once you have fallen on the grace and mercy of Christ, you walk on this path of growing close to God as you follow this journey. That's what we called it for the journey as we looked at the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments this summer because these are things that help shape us on this lifelong journey of growing in Christ-likeness and stepping into the life that is eternity. The grace of this whole thing is it is a journey. You're going to fall off. But it is by grace you have been saved. It's not only by grace you've been saved, it's also by grace that you remain. Philippians 1.6, the very first part of Philippians, is one of my favorite passages, verses in Scripture. It says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. God wants to work in you. He will not let you go. You will fall short, but he has you if you put your trust in him. Let's pray. God, our hearts are constantly longing for and loving other things. We seek after and hunger for things that do not satisfy. We look around and compare and are anxious. And many in here are struggling with real hardships. And it's really hard to be content. God, show up. Reveal yourself to us in prayer and thought and practices, in the liturgies of our day and in this day, so that we might see that you are the one who satisfies the one who can bring contentment and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.